The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5:21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. We, uh, we are finally, I don't know if you feel this way, we are finally coming to the last week in our seven-week series uh, on, our, on our sermon series called The Mystery of Marriage. Um, you might be getting tired of it. I, I kind of get a little tired of it when we're sitting on one topic for such a long time, but I really think there's so much more that we could spend time on talking about when it comes to marriage, uh, and I hope that this time studying marriage has been valuable for you, because really what this serves as is kind of like a, a, a mass, uh, you know, a group therapy session, if you will, right? We're all here sitting together wondering, how do we improve our marriages? What does it look like for the gospel to resonate so deep in our lives that it even affects uh, the relationships that we have? Because the reality is that everybody's got some sort of marital issues. If you're married, you got mar- marital issues. If you're going to get married someday, you probably are going to have, mar- I guarantee you're going to have marital issues. And so there's always going to be room for growth in the topic of marriage, and I just find it so amazing how the Word of God works in a way that can rip off calluses, right? Our hearts can get callous, we can get so used to doing things a certain way, or we get accustomed to it, or the assumptions that we have when it comes to marriage, Uh, and God comes in and gives us His Word in a way that, that takes off those calluses, and and if you've ever had a callus rip off your hand, you know that when that thing comes off, it's really sensitive underneath there, right? It's prone to infection, but one of the great things of the Word of God, not only does he rip off these calluses of our hearts, but he also has a healing balm for us to apply to heal those wounds, and so we've been seeing how the gospel resonates, how it gets into the nitty-gritty and and provides the means for us to mature and to thrive as married people and aspiring married people uh, in accordance with God's design. And so my, my hope is that after this series, uh, that our church is going to be healthier, 
that, that our church is going to be stronger and more robust and the marriages in it are going to be better and better as time goes on. And, and, but I would say that my desire for this series has also been a little bit uh, self-serving because um, as we are coming up on our two-year anniversary as a church, we planted our church about two years ago, um, I am jealous for fellow elders um, for biblically qualified men to come alongside of me in the pastorate and to serve and to lay their life down for God's church. And, and one, there's, there's really two major qualifications for elders. There's a lot of qualifications, but the, but the two big ones, when the Apostle Paul is laying out what it looks like for someone to step into the role of an elder is one, they, they have to be a mature Christian, right? They have to know the gospel, live in the gospel. The second piece of it is that they need to be able to lead their household well. That these are, these are men who love their wife well. These are men who lead their children in a way that points to Jesus. And so I'm praying that, that this would be kind of a piece uh, in the puzzle of seeing God pull up and raise up elders to come alongside uh, of me. And so would you join me as we're coming up on that two-year mark? Would you join me in praying to that end? Uh, maybe, maybe you're one of the men in the room that you feel like, I think that maybe God's calling me into this. Uh, just be praying for that with me. And, and by God's grace, I hope that we would see some elders step into or continue in our elder development process. So anyway, all that, today we're closing our series. Uh, and so what I want to do in this last sermon uh, on the series is spend some time sort of pulling back out. We, we started sort of at a, at a 30,000-foot view, uh, and we zoomed in as weeks progressed and got to get into the nitty-gritty, getting into some of the, the daily dynamics of marriage. And again, we're going to zoom back out to maybe even a higher perspective. We're going to, instead of a 30,000-foot view, we're going to a 50,000-foot view, and we're going to check out what marriage is really about. And what I want to assert to you is that marriage is the feeder of God. That every marriage is like a theater. That it's like a story that's set on the stage of life for the rest of the world to see. And so far in this series, we've been talking about a lot of what's happening on stage, right? We've talked about the plot, right? What's the purpose of marriage? Well, God's, God's working to renew all things back to himself. Marriage is a piece of that. We've seen the design, the set design, right? The framework here for marriage. That's a covenant between one man and, and one woman for life. And we've seen the characters and the roles come up across stage, right? We've, we've seen the unique responsibilities that God has given man and woman and how to fill those things together. But there's a difference between good theater and bad theater. And it has far more, it goes beyond how good the acting is. It goes beyond how good the set design is or the costume design is. What makes theater good is how well the drama connects to the audience, how, how palpable the story is, how, how real the drama is. If, it's, if the story is detached from human experience, even if you think about sci-fi stories, right, there's always a human element to those stories that, that we can relate to, even if it's sent out in a galaxy far, far away. If the story's detached from human reality, it doesn't land. It doesn't capture the imagination. It doesn't stir the affections of the audience. But good theater, the best theater, connects to the beauty 
connects to the tragedy of real life. And what it does, it causes the audience to savor the moment. Maybe frames it up in a way of, of, you know, if I were going through my normal day life, I wouldn't really think about it this way. And so in this sense, it, it provides us an access or a window to look into the reality of life and appreciate it for what it is. Now, marriage is the same way. Our marriage, marriages are a, a theater of God where, where the, the, the drama that's unfolding in our lives takes us beyond what's happening in the immediate contexts. And it takes us beyond the curtains, past the stage, and it takes us into a deep, cosmic, spiritual reality of God's story that he's telling in the gospel. And this is really where, where I want to focus on today. Just the last, well, it's the second to last verse. In Ephesians 5, verse 32, we're talking about this relationship between Christ and the church that is mirrored in marriage, he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it, speaking of marriage, refers to Christ and the church. I mean, the Greek, the word that, that Paul uses here, he says it's a profound mystery. It's a, a mega mysterion. It's a mega mystery. It's a, it's a profound, it's a big mystery. There's something about marriage that is more than what meets the eye. Beyond our marriages lie a truer, more beautiful, more real story. And the more we are enthralled with this big story that God is telling to us in the gospel, the more our marriages become shaped by this story. And being shaped by this story our marriages become more glorious and more enjoyable than thinkable. The story that God is telling us, the story of the gospel, is a story of resiliency and intimacy, a story of toughness and tenderness, a story of fortitude and fondness. It's a story where the difficulties and adversities that we experience are overcome, specifically sin, death, and the grave. It's a story that demonstrates the strength and endurance that God has for his people and forbearance he has with his people for the long haul. And while it's strong and it's robust and resilient, it's not calloused. If you think about that, going back to the calloused idea, the more you work with your hands, the more calluses build up, right? There's a strength, a toughness that your hands have. But it's hard to be gentle when you have hands that are all scratchy and callous. It's hard to, to finesse. But here in the gospel story, along with resilience, also comes tenderness, sincere affection, and delicate intimacy. Now, in order for us to understand how special this story is, to, to realize how, uh, how resiliency and intimacy are, are so unique, we have to realize that this doesn't come automatically. Now, there might be bursts of resiliency in marriage, right? The seasons where maybe there's a loss in the family and there's just a strength that's built up. Right? We learn to depend on one another in a way that's, that's really unique to the time. Or even at the beginning of marriage, the honeymoon stage where, where intimacy is just you know, pumping through the veins. 
But in order for resilience and intimacy to happen in tandem over the long course of time, this is a very special thing. It's even supernatural. Now just think about marriage for a minute here. Marriage, what happens in marriage is you put two sinners in close proximity. You say, okay, you guys kind of like each other here so far. We're going to put you together. You're going to live together. And I don't know, maybe you've had a challenging roommate situation. I've had a couple uh, in my bachelor years. One of the guys that I lived with was in a, a hardcore band and they insisted on practicing in our basement for like six hours a day on Saturdays, and it was just miserable, right? Trying to live with somebody that's got a different agenda, that got diff- different stuff going on, it's just really tough. But in marriage, you're, you're together forever, right? There, there's no rotation of roommates. There's no expired lease that allows you to move on to the next person. Uh, uh, but then in marriage, you're not just sharing a common space for a few hours a day. You're with that person forever. You're, you're sharing everything together. You're sharing your finances. Now listen, if there's one thing that causes conflict in marriage, it's when you have uh, two people with one joint checking account. Right? There's going to be a lot of conflict there, especially when it comes to the different ideas people have about spending money. And that's just to point to the relational conflict, the, the, the natural conflict that's going to come out of being in close proximity with another sinner. There's always going to be frustrations of unmet expectations, the feelings of hurt. And then you top it off with really heavy topics like parenting and sex and the work-home dynamics. And then there's only one TV in the house. There's a lot of opportunities for conflict, And what I'm saying here is that because marriage consists of two profoundly self-interested people, marriage has the tendency to be a lot like a Molotov cocktail. There's, there's only so much that decency and delusion can accomplish in your marriage. Right? For, you can only pretend like stuff doesn't bother you for so long. Now, the fuse might be lit, but you're looking. There's, there's no major explosions yet, but it's just a matter of time before something big happens or something blows up. And eventually, conflict becomes unavoidable, if not insurmountable. And if not dealt with in a healthy way, things are going to go poorly. That thing's going to blow up. Because at some point, somebody's going to say something, somebody's going to do something that deeply wounds, excuse me, deeply wounds or threatens the integrity of the, the relationship. Now, in a culture in, like the Midwest, where we've got strong family values, I think one of the tendencies that we see is just, you know, when conflict arises, what do we do with it? Right? We shove it under the rug. We, we, we kind of tuck it away. We ignore it uh, in order to preserve the external appearance of being happy together. If you do that, resentment, irritation festers. And, and, and over time, you start growing apart until finally there's a chasm that's so big that you wonder why you're even together anymore. On the other, op- the other side is the option of divorce. 
read something this week. Ronald's, Ronald Reagan's biggest regret while he was president was creating the no-fault divorce. People come into conflict. They don't know how to resolve it. Right? What's the easiest way out? It's just move toward divorce. In fact, I was looking online. It's $139. For some people, it seems like divorce is the easiest way to avoid conflict or, or the conflict is maybe appears too big to reconcile. But neither one of these approaches to conflict demonstrates the resiliency, let alone the intimacy that God meant for marriage to have. Now, I, I just need to take a minute um, to talk about divorce because we've had seven weeks in in a marriage series, and I haven't hardly touched on it, and so I just want to—I just want to just momentarily press here. For Christians, divorce is a lot like a pilot's eject button in an aircraft. It's only meant to, to be deployed in the most qualified of situations, right? You're, you, if you're in an airplane, if you run into a patch of turbulence, you're not going to go for that button right away. There's a certain point in time where it's necessary to hit that button for the sake of survival. And so while in, in the life of a Christian, divorce is something that's promoted, there are some situations, there are biblical reasons for people to hit the eject button. They fall under two categories. There's unreconcilable adultery and there's unreconcilable abandonment, whether that's physical or emotional, relational abandonment. And this is, this is as sort of a last-ditch effort where, where an effort has been made by at least one party to reconcile, but the other person is uninterested or hardened to the idea of coming back together. In fact, Jesus, when he was asked about divorce, he said, this is the reason why divorce is even a thing. It's because our hardness of heart, the way that sin can get into our hearts and just make them hard toward one another. Now, if God says that marriage is a matter of two people becoming one flesh, this means that divorce is like amputation. You're not just shedding a layer of clothes. You're, you're losing a part of you. It, it creates a major void. Now, listen, sometimes this is necessary for survival. There are times where it's either you lose a leg or you lose your life. This just points to the, to the high-risk, high-gain thing marriage is in the world of sin. See, marriage, marriage will never just leave your life as it is. Marriage will either enhance your life or it will make your life really, really hard. Maybe this is your experience. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm certain there are people in this room who have gone through a divorce You've gone through every effort to make something in, in that relationship work, but it just ends up not working out, and you feel discarded, you feel rejected. 
And I know there, there's real guilt, there's real shame and pain that divorce comes in. It's not just having the label of being a divorcee. There's a sense where your vulnerability has been violated, that your dreams have been crushed, that's just really, really hard. Only Jesus can mend heart wounds that are so deep. A new relationship won't fix it. Escaping in alcohol or shopping or whatever sort of thing you can keep your ocu- yourself occupied with, pointing the finger and blaming the other, that doesn't fix it. It's something that only Jesus can mend. Psalm 34 tells us God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. In this way, God shows us that, that in the ashes, he can bring up beauty. And in the church, most people are very sympathetic, very compassionate towards somebody who's been hurt in marriage, where where their their spouse has run away, somebody's broken their heart. But but what what if you're the one who's responsible for the fallout of marriage? What if if you're the one who's responsible for all the bad things that ended up leading to divorce, right? You, You realize this. Okay, I can look back and see all the things that I've done. Now, most people would look at you and they would not be very sympathetic. They say, you know what, this is your fault. You need to live with your mistakes. And in some cases, it's an even more severe reaction. And if you're fortunate enough for the conviction of guilt and shame to catch up with you, it might seem like now this is your burden to bear for the rest of your life. Now, there certainly is a place to take ownership. There certainly is a place for repentance. But the reality is that that your ex and their family and her friends or his friends probably don't want anything to do with you. And in, in turn, you feel the same sort of rejection that you made your ex feel. And you wonder if there's anybody who will take you. Jesus will take you. See, Jesus looks at you, and he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He looks at you, and he goes, you've clearly been unfaithful. You've clearly made a mess of your life. Your selfishness has taken over. It's destroyed everything. But I want you. Jesus says, I'm going to set my love on you in such a profound way that that all of your blemishes, all your faults, all your failures, all your sin, I'm going to make that pure. I'm going to wash it away. I'm going to make you spotless and beautiful and holy. That's what Paul is talking about, what Jesus does to the church in verse 27. He's washing it away. He's taking the ugly. He's making it beautiful. And you know what that is? That's, That's forgiveness language. That's not just language of I'll tolerate you, but I'll forgive you. Now, in our culture, forgiveness is the real F word. It's offensive. 
Because our internal sense of justice says that if I was wronged or if somebody is wronged, that person who did the wronging needs to pay the price. They need to reap what they sowed. Now, early this year, there was, there was a very potent example of this in the trial of Larry Nasser, who's a convicted rapist targeting the gymnast, the Olympic gymnast. Horrific thing, right? And even when you come to the end of the trial and he gets a 175-year life sentence, that still doesn't seem adequate for the heinous evil acts that he did. And during this trial and during the, sentence, the sentencing, some of his victims came forward and they would speak uh, about the situation and they would make sure that their displeasure, their hate of this man was known to the world. And I, I don't know if I can blame these girls for what he did, but they'd say stuff like, you're nothing, enjoy hell. But there was one victim Rachel Den Hollander, who courageously offered him forgiveness, just stood up there and is based upon her belief of the gospel, the forgiveness that Jesus has given her, that she offered it to this man who was very undeserving of forgiveness. And when this happened, people thought she was crazy. How in the world could she say something like that, right? You get the social media buzz going, like, I would never forgive that man. Because there's this attitude in our culture that if you forgive someone, it means that you're weak. It's giving that person an opportunity to walk all over you, and, and it gives them another chance for them to crush you. Either that or forgiveness is viewed as fake. It doesn't really, it's just words. It doesn't actually mean anything. Or maybe it's just straight up just too costly. It's too hard to forgive somebody. It makes me too vulnerable. I might get hurt again. But in a loving marriage, it's the opposite. See, culture says if you forgive, you're going to get crushed. But in marriage, if you refuse to forgive, you will be crushed. Because in marriage, what you'll realize is that your good works can't save you. Your performance, you're not good enough of a spouse to always live up to the expectations. You're eventually going to mess up. You're eventually going to say something hurtful. You're going to breach that person's trust. You cannot be perfect. And if things in your marriage are going to work out, you must rely upon the grace of your spouse. Now what this shows us here, this is like scenes one and scenes two of the story that God is telling. In scene one of God's story, he tells the story of creation, how he created everything and it was good. It was meant to be good. There's a sense of peace and enjoyment and shalom. That's, that's a Hebrew word for that everything is right and working together in harmony. We see this marriage was intended to create, be a, a place of shalom. But scene two comes in and it's a devastating scene and, and really 
when you're reading through the Bible, you don't get very far. You only make it to Genesis chapter 3 before you see how things go poorly. Things break down in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree that was forbidden from them. There's fall entering, this fall, there's sin entering into the world, and it affects not, not only just things not going right in sort of a physical sense. Now there's a real uh, relational conflict that goes on between Adam and Eve. And we see how this is mirrored in our, our marriages. There's going to be times of hurt when someone sins against the other. And this is where we have conflict, right? Things were once good and now they're not good. And you wonder, how do we fix this? Or is this just going to be how it is for the rest of our marriage? This next scene, scene three of God's story, is where we find out if couples really understand the gospel or not. Because in scene three of God's story, Jesus says he looks at the sinner, he looks at the transgressor, he looks at the person who's been imperfect and says, even though you've messed up, I'm choosing to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to absorb the hurt. I'm going to absorb the wrongdoing, even though you sinned against me. And how does the offender respond? Repentance. That's, that's how the church responds. Jesus laying his life down and forgiving the church, and the church responds in repentance. We confess our sins. We say, yes, I messed up, I, I did the wrong thing, but Jesus, I'm turning back to you. And here is where we see redemption. And this scene of redemption plays over and over and over in the Christian life. It's like a cycle, right? They're, they're probably like, in your lifetime, there'll be probably three really huge Moments where you realize how deeply you've been forgiven. You realize how much Jesus loves you. Just super profound moments that are life-shaping. And then, and then on the cycle of months, you realize, you know what, I, I, I veered away. And maybe not quite to the same degree of, of those bigger moments in my life, but, but I, I sense that still. And then even in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment, there's a sense of, I, I, I've been unfaithful. I've sinned. Yet Jesus has offered me forgiveness. And so this is, this is the, the cycle of the Christian life. This is a cycle within marriage. And in marriage, if we understand this scene of redemption, how Jesus forgives and we respond in repentance, it, it means that, that we don't fight back with our spouse when they've hurt us. Right? We, we don't retaliate. It doesn't mean that we, we pull away from each other. We don't do those things because that's not what Jesus did with us. If you're rubbing in your spouse's sin, if you're being passive aggressive, trying to get them to wake up to what's going on, if you're trying to guilt them or, or humiliate them with what they've done wrong or make them grovel and try to get back within, within your good graces, you don't understand the gospel. 
because that is not how Jesus treated you. When you lashed out at him, Jesus leaned in to make things right. He didn't make you jump through any hoops before he forgave you. He decided, I'm gonna set my love on you and I'm gonna keep it there. See, the gospel reminds us, the story that God is telling, this cosmic story, reminds us that we are sinners in need of God's constant grace. And because we have received so greatly, we give. When couples remember the gospel, there's this natural flow. It's a generous flow of forgiveness and repentance that comes in their relationship. Now, I realize this kind of sounds idyllic where people, you know, this, oh, he hurt me. He realized it. Um, I can forgive him. He's, he's repenting to me. But what about, what about the times where it's a little bit fuzzier? Right? The times where your spouse hurts you and maybe they're oblivious to what they've done. Right? How, do you, how do you deal with something like that from, from a grace perspective? Now, we've talked about this before where just bypassing the conflict is not loving at all. So what's a loving way to confront your spouse without coming at them in a condescending way, right? Here's an idea. You can say to them, honey, I've noticed that you're stressed out. I I can see these things, these factors in life are going on. But I'm feeling this. I, I, I feel hurt by this. Now that's a way, it, it, it's a way that in saying something like that, you're, you're not lobbing a grenade at them. You're not waging war. You're saying, look, I, I understand. I'm sympathetic. I'm compassionate to your circumstances. But, but there's something that I need to address. Listen, and if, if they see it, if they realize it, they're, they're going to own it. If the Spirit's at work convicting them of their their sin, which is primarily the Spirit's responsibility, they're going to say, you know what, there's no excuse. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that I was doing this. What does it look like to fix this, right? This is the posture of repentance. And when a conversation like that unfolds, you know that the Spirit is at work. The Spirit's at work, one, in, in, in the person who's hurt and reminding of them of the gospel and how the, that they've hurt God in their sin. But the Spirit's at work in convicting the other person and leading them to true repentance. And what I mean by true repentance, I'm not talking about this kind of feeling bad for yourself, a sort of pity party, a, a sort of a way of trying to work off the wrong or maybe even the, even the, the tendency to blame or to, to look, to point the finger and, and justify why you did something wrong in the first place. True repentance is ownership of the wrong that leads to refreshing. That's what Acts chapter 4 talks about with repentance comes seasons of refreshing. It's as if you feel lighter, like a a, a weighted vest has been lifted off of you. And here's how you can tell the difference between a religious person and a true Christian. 
That when, when a religious person is confronted with their sin and, and with the idea of them needing to, to step into repentance, they feel further from God. Right? They, they've been banking on their own works, their, their lists, that, that if the good would outweigh the, the bad, that, that the good would be better. Right? Their, their, their closeness, their intimacy with God, their standing with God is based upon their own works. But, but when a Christian is confronted by their sin and they repent, they know that they're closer to God than they've ever been. They realize, oh man, I've messed up big time. But I found a love that is tough. I found a love that's resilient in Christ, that he's loved me so greatly that I have the ability to free myself from having to defend and justify. So let me just ask, when you're confronted when your sin is made visible and somebody says, hey, I, I think something's off here, how do you respond? Are, are you relying on your own works or are you relying on God's grace? A godly marriage is going to rely heavily on God's grace. And this does not mean that good marriages are, are marked by a lack of conflict. That, that's not the case. That, that if you don't have any conflict in your marriage, it's a good marriage. That, that's not the case. But here's what the mark is. That, that if, you, if your marriage is marked by repentance and forgiveness, that's a sign of a healthy marriage. That's a sign of godly marriage. Because you're realizing that every step of the way, there's grace. It's all grace. It's all pointing to Jesus. It all points to God's strong love for us, that, that his strong love overcomes our sin and our failures. See, this is what makes Christian marriages strong and resilient. With grace at the center, it lasts for the long haul. You might think that every time that forgiveness and repentance is necessary, that every time it com comes up, you might think that there's a, a natural decrease in intimacy, right? That each time you get hurt or you are hurt by someone, it's like you're taking a step back. It's as if that, that hurt withdraws something from the bank of relational equity. And although there's forgiveness, things don't necessarily feel the same anymore. It's hard to be vulnerable again. It's hard to open yourself up to somebody like that. But again, this is not how God relates to us in the gospel. He says, yes, 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 you need to repent. But in repentance, come closer. Take a step nearer. See, repentance gives us the eyes to see how deep and profound the love that Jesus has for us is. Because it's not just forgiveness one time or two times or three times. This is an over and over and over again. And in repenting over and over again, we go deeper and deeper into the love that God has for us. And in going deeper into this love and seeing how deeply we're loved, 
we're told that there is a completely new way for us to relate to God. Romans 7, 4 talks about this. He says that we used to have this old way of living, this old way of relating to God through works of the law, by keeping up our end of, of the deal, by being good enough. But he says we have died to the law that we may be belong to another. He's saying there is a new way for you to now relate to God, and that's through the grace of Jesus, that we belong to Jesus and he is ours. So now the way that we relate to God is through the work of Christ, his abundant grace, and, and in doing so, we find new arms to fall into. We find a, a better lover of our souls. And the nature of this relationship with Jesus is meant to be intimate. It's not, it's not a cold, tucked away part of our life. It's an intimate, thriving relationship. And, it, and in being intimate, that, that passage in Romans 7 goes on and says, now bear fruit for God. Now, now this might sound weird to the dudes in the room, right? To, to go bear fruit, that, that invokes this idea of being pregnant, bearing fruit. But this is what the call for all Christians is. Say, now live into this identity, bear fruit. And we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruit of the Spirit that are produced as we are united with Christ. That we become more generous, more compassionate, more forgiving. But listen to this. Simply being married does not produce babies. We don't have a bunch of kids downstairs in kids' ministry right now because we have a bunch of married couples, right? Intimacy produces babies. Intimacy produces fruit. If Sally is married to Greg, but she's intimate with Larry, whose fruit is she gonna produce? Right? That's sort of a crude illustration, but the concept is the same. There's a spiritual reality behind this, that we can be married to Jesus. We can say we belong to Jesus, but we're bearing the fruit of somebody or something else. Everybody's bearing fruit. Everybody's got some sort of fruit that's coming out of their life. It's just a matter of whose fruit it is. Is it Jesus' fruit or is it somebody else's? It's very common for Christians, especially in Western Christianity, where somebody shows up on Sunday morning and says, yes, I'm married to Christ, but they're being more intimate with their job, with their money, with vanity, with status. So if I were to ask you, what, what temptress are you lured by? What, what makes your heart race? What fills your thoughts when you have nothing else to think about? What do you turn to for comfort? Where does your heart go for pleasure? You might very well be cheating on Jesus with something else, being unfaithful. And, and this is a common narrative throughout biblical history. Right, Really what the whole story of, of, of God is about is an unfaithful bride and a faithful husband. Isaiah 57 talks about how God's people were burning with lusts for their idols. 
that same burning is happening in our hearts too. But the thing about Jesus is that he's so desirous of us. He doesn't want to just label us as his and we go on our way. He wants us in every facet, in every way to be totally and completely belonging to him. That every piece of us is marked by Jesus. He's not okay with partial fidelity. He's not okay with the proverbial taking the wedding ring off and doing our own thing and then coming back on Sundays to put it back on. And he's not trying to restrict us. He's not being greedy. He's trying to lead us into the depths of intimacy and devotion that we can experience when we are fully devoted to him. And so we have to realize that in in marriage and in our walk with Jesus, intimacy isn't created on the go. Intimacy happens when we slow down when we sit face to face and we we start really knowing each other. See, God gave us the gift of sex, which is really the greatest form of intimacy that we can experience on on this side of heaven. And even as great as as sex might be, it's only meant to to be an arrow pointing to the future glory, to the future intimacy, when Jesus and his church are are finally united as one. That in Revelation 21, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation who professes Christ as Lord come together at the, the feast at the table and they say, we are completely and totally yours. That Our heart is yours. Our, your heart is for us. Let me just ask this final, this final question. Maybe, maybe you're not a believer. You, you don't feel like, I can't say that I'm, I belong to Jesus yet. I'm not sure. I, I kind of like the idea of it. Listen, if you are ready to move toward Jesus, know this. Jesus has already moved toward you. He looks at your sin. He looks at all the wrong things that you've done. And he says, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to go to the cross myself. I'm going to lay my life down so you can find a new life in me. And the only thing he says, the only thing he wants from you is just repentance. To confess, I've gone astray. I'm coming back home. And for the believers in this room, let me ask you this. Are you being faithful to Jesus? Are you seeking intimacy with him? Marriage is meant to point us to something greater. And a gospel marriage that is resilient and has intimacy is something to be celebrated, something to be cherished. But as great as marriage is, it only points to something that's far greater. The day when Jesus comes, stands at the front of the aisle, and his bride is walked down. She's clothed in splendor and glory and beauty, where every sin, every stain has been washed away. As far as the east is from the west, sin is gone. And forevermore, 
There's intimacy, deep companionship. That's what we look forward to. Father, we ask that you would do a good work in our marriages, continue to do a good work in our marriages, that you would help us to model our lives, our marriages after Christ and what he's done for the church. Father, if we feel convicted this morning, if there's a sense of guilt and shame that's lingering over us, Father, I pray that you would make us be quick to move toward the cross and knowing that you've moved toward us. I pray that we would be able to confess our sins and know that we have a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to pour out his love on, on his children. I'm thankful for even the call to worship. You don't treat us uh, according to our sins. You treat us far greater. And this, is, this meal reminds us of that. We deserve the death, but instead you give us life. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.